Amen. Our scripture lesson today comes from the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. Uh, Let's share in God's good word together. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me has actually helped to spread the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having been made confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, dare to speak the word with greater boldness and without fear. For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. To live is Christ. Each and every breath you have is a gift from Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. And yet, to gain, to die is even better. Because then you get to see him face to face. You are no longer weighted down with these bodies and the struggles and the pains and the worries of this world. So to live is good. And in our faith, to die is better. And and the thing is that a lot of people say they want to go to heaven. They just don't want to go today. Right? Because we enjoy our life. It is a good life. But we live in the power of Christ. My name is Mark Foster. I'm the founding and senior pastor here, and welcome to each and every one of you. We are in the middle of a series on joy, and joy comes to all of us at different times, in different ways, in different seasons, Um, but we want to share with you how to find it, and how to keep it, how to hold on to it, and how to share it with others. Uh, As a way of introduction to today's sermon, uh, Paul, as he writes the words that we just read, is under military guard as he writes the church in Philippi. You might say that, you know, he's been arrested. He's in jail. He's at least under military guard. It's not exactly the same kind of jail that you and I would think of. um, Because in those jails, for example, they didn't feed you. So if your friends didn't come and give you food, you didn't eat. Which is why Jesus says, you go in and visit the imprisoned, because otherwise they would die. Does this make sense? It's a very different sort of thing. But this is what Paul is saying. And he's not upset about it. He's glorying in it. He says, look what this has made possible. You see, Paul has a choice between despair over his impending death. I mean, he knows what's happening next. Or the acceptance and usefulness of his situation. He says, listen, friends, you don't need to be upset. I get to witness to the Imperial Guard, and there's nothing they can do about it. They're stuck with me. Am I in prison or am they in prison? How is it? It's based on his perspective. And that's the first pillar of joy is perspective. Two people can go through the exact same thing and one can rail against it and one can live in joy in the exact same circumstances. It's about your perspective. Theologian Jürgen Moltmann says it like this. We are created for joy. Will you say that with me? We are created for joy. We are born for joy. And and those of you who have... um, you know, had a baby, you know, this is, this is incredible. There's a lot of pain there, but there's a lot of joy there. We even worship a God of joy. Our God is a God of joy. All of creation worships and celebrates and rejoices this God of joy. Psalm 100 is one of my favorite songs in, in all the Bible. It says this, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with what? If somebody were to look at your worship today, would they say, they're worshiping in gladness. Or are they worshiping in tiredness? 
How are you worshiping? Are you worshiping with gladness? Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord is God. It is he that made us. We are his. We are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with what? Thanksgiving. And his courts with praise. This changes our lives. The song goes on. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. And our awareness of this goodness allows us to live in joy. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations, not just to you, not to just your neighbors, not to just the whole world, but to every generation that will ever live. This is who God is. Now, when it comes to joy, we can sort of misinterpret it. We can think of it as happiness, although it's much bigger than that. And some of you, um, if you've taught kindergarten or you've worked with pre-K, you know that there are certain children that just seem to be effusive. They seem to be joyful and others seem to be somber. There are those that are outgoing and those that are shy. But here's the good news, friends. Joy is more than a mood. It's more than a mood. And it's beyond temperament. So, so think about this. There, there are all sorts of different temperaments, right? But you could be timid or you could be bold. You can be upbeat or you can even be somber and still be a person of joy. Because joy isn't fake. Joy isn't elusive and only for some. Joy is available to all of God's children because that's what you're created for. You're created for joy. One, one of my favorite books in the Bible is First Peter. Um, I think of you know, Peter and the, the founding of the church. And he's just always just so direct and sometimes off page and sometimes on page. But Peter just tells it like it is. And he says, in this you rejoice, even if now for a little while you've had to suffer for various trials. And certainly the early church was at that time. Although you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, Jesus, you believe in him. And rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. For you are receiving the outcome of your faith. The salvation of your souls. Yep, this is good news. God's love and joy are for everyone. And they're available for everyone. It's available to you today, no matter what you're going through. God will meet you right there and bring you comfort and joy. In Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, he says, This is what God looks like when God lives in you. Looks like love. Looks like joy. Those are the top two things that we are to be people of. This is how people should describe us. People of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and generosity. Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Some Bibles uh, translate generosity as goodness. Goodness, generosity. So Archbishop Desmond Tutu, um, in this book, The Book of Joy, he says it like this. Joy is much bigger than happiness. While happiness is often seen as being dependent on external circumstances, joy is not. So joy is one of those things that if you try to get it, you'll miss it. You have to live for something beyond yourself. Really, joy is a byproduct, right? You can't just go purchase it. Joy comes at you sideways. It's really like this with all of the spiritual disciplines. When, when you fast or you pray or you study... Those things in themselves don't necessarily give you what you need. But you'll be amazed at the insight you get after you've been fasting for a while about what drives your body and how that affects your mind and how that affects your spirit. You'll be amazed at when, as you study the Old Testament how so much of the New Testament comes alive. But those, that joy, that understanding comes as a byproduct, not as the direct thing of which you're doing. 
And for those reasons, a lot of people never try. They never do their study. They never have quiet. They never have peace in their life because when they sit down for five minutes and nothing happens, they're like, well, it didn't work. But that's not how it works. A, a set time to be before the Lord allows goodness to flow into your life in unexpected ways. Again, Bishop Tutu says it like this. If you set out and say, I want to be happy clenching your teeth with determination, this is the quickest way of missing the bus. This doesn't work that way. Joy comes when we move beyond our own self-interest from I and me to what? Us and we. That's who we are, community of faith. So this joy, again, is a matter of perspective of how you look at the world. So that's week one. Week two, um, Pastor Brandon talked to us about humility. Jesus taught us that we are not the center of the universe God is. And if you keep yourself at the center of the universe or even your family, you are going to be worn out because we don't have other control. We don't often even have self-control. And so we have to keep our eyes on God and then our lives have the right perspective. How big is God? Pretty big, right? I mean, if you go to the Grand Canyon, that's big. God's bigger. Whatever you see, God is bigger. I, I don't know if you all follow the telescopes that have been taking uh, photos. You see the black hole. Um, I mean, it's amazing. And they see other galaxies and other stars. And, I mean, God is just so much bigger. And we keep seeing this. It's really beautiful. Again, Bishop Tutu would say it like this. When we realize that we are all children of God, when we look at that little blue marble from space, and of equal intrinsic value, then we don't have to feel better or worse than others. No one is a divine accident. Not one person. You are here on purpose. You are here for a reason. You are important to God. You are important to the people around you. So Jesus' teaching on humility was new. It, it wasn't old. It wasn't something that people already knew. They, this was brand new to them. Humility then and sometimes even now was thought of as a weakness. It was, you know, if you really wanted to get something done, you, you needed to be bombastic. You needed to be forward. You needed to be outgoing. You didn't want to be humble. And Jesus turned that on its head. This teaching was new and wise and true. In the Gospel of Luke, it says it like this. When he noticed, Jesus, how the guests chose the place of honor, he told them a parable. Now, friends, this might be the best thing you could ever tell a graduate, this graduation weekend for so many people. This is just good sense. And if you haven't learned this yet, learn it today. It will change your life for good. When you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, or to any kind of banquet, really, do not sit down at the place of honor. In case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your seat, your place. Can you imagine if you went up at a wedding banquet and you sat next to the bride and groom? And then they're like, uh, dude, you're not a part of the wedding party. You got to go sit down there. That's embarrassing. You would never want to do that. But that's what a lack of humility gets you. Jesus says, no, no, don't do that. You don't want to be disgraced. Jesus is trying to help us here, friends. He said, you would start to take the lowest place, but when you're invited, you go and sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, like, what are you doing sitting all the way back there? I see you back there. Move up. Come on up here. You're a part of us. And he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be what? Humbled. Just how it works. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's not true because Jesus said it. It's true 
That's why Jesus said it. He's trying to help us. He's always trying to be for you and help you and help you understand how the world really works. He is the smartest man who ever lived on the planet. And we need to understand this, that God himself came and lived among us, and he's trying to help you. Everything Jesus says is for your good. But often our problem is that we would rather be special than happy. That's a pandemic around here, by the way. So how many, how many of you all asked a, a recent graduate if they're happy or if they had a job or, how they, or what awards they got? Our culture really struggles with this, and our children are paying the price. Depression, anxiety, worry, mental health issues, because we think somehow everybody's supposed to be unique and special and maybe even better than, rather than simply receiving the joy and happiness that God has for all his children. Joy is elusive if you have to be better than. I mean, think this through. If you really have to be better than to be happy, how long does that last? If you're better than someone athletically, guess what? By the time you're 54, you won't be. Right? If you have to be stronger than someone intellectually or in your career, there's a day that you won't be. So if you truly have to be better than in your mind in order to be happy or to think you have joy, it will not be yours. It'll be fleeting and it'll be anxious because of when will that day come? Because you can't be better than every day of your life. Let me come to week three, humor. I I thought uh, Megan did an amazing job last week on humor. And humor allows us to see the ridiculous in us all. To see our common humanity. To laugh at ourselves. I, I don't know who said this, but I love this. Laughter is the most direct line between two people. Have you ever received a good joke with somebody and you're just, you're just naturally connected to them the first time that you're with them because you're laughing together? It's a beautiful thing. But it's a certain kind of laughter. It's humor that doesn't demean us or anyone else. It's not mean for sure. Humor that doesn't demean is an invitation to everyone to join in the laughter. In the laughter. Last week, Megan talked to us about um, this book jacket of Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama. The, the, one of the source materials for this is this book where they had a series of meetings together. And what was so amazing... Um, the, the writer Douglas Abrams says is when they got together and they were dealing with really hard issues and the harder the issue, the bigger the laughter. He said so often their first response to any subject, no matter how seemingly painful, was to laugh. And if you look at really any spiritual leader, if you listen uh, to the people who are close to God and you ask them a hard question, their first response often is just to laugh. They're like, whew, that's a good question. That's a big one. That's bigger than me. Um, let's see how we can maybe uh, get at this. I was listening to a podcast of uh, Father Richard Rohr. He's a Franciscan friar. And almost every time he was asked a question, he would just laugh. And he would, he would kind of settle and laugh and be a person of joy. And then he would begin to answer. So the archbishop believes in self-deprecating humor. And, and he tells this really wonderful story um, about he and his wife. They were driving, and he was about to do a mediation between the Hutus and the Tutsis. And if you know anything about that, that is life and death stuff. Just really, really hard, um, terrible stuff that he was trying to get on top of. And as they were going, he tells a story where he looks over at his wife, Leah, and he said, really, she looked smug, maybe for the first time in in his life, in her life, that he saw. And he was like, wow, what is going on with my wife? And she just pointed to the bumper sticker in front of him. You know what it said? said this, any woman who wants to be equal to a man has no ambition. 
And I just laughed and laughed and laughed at that. So this is where we've been. We are looking at these pillars, these qualities of the mind, and the last of these, there are four of them, the last of that is acceptance. Is acceptance. And if you will begin to really hear and believe and understand the power of acceptance in your life, you will relieve so much pain and suffering in your life and the lives of others. If you can really accept the truth about what's going on. Now, acceptance is simply the ability to accept our life and all its pain, imperfection, and beauty. That's what acceptance is. Have you ever gotten a text from someone that was inappropriate or kind of got your flame on mad? And there was a response that you had that was true, but it wasn't wise. It was true and you could send it and you would be backed up. But the truth of the matter is that you haven't really accepted the limitation of the person who sent you the first text. Because if you understood who they were and they understood who they were, they wouldn't have sent you the first one in the first place. Isn't that right? And so you actually save yourself the pain and the suffering by saying, you know what? While that's true, it's not helpful. This person is simply limited in this way. And if I respond in kind, it's not going to go anywhere. It's just going to cause more pain and hardship in the relationship. You see, friends, this is the hard and beautiful truth. Acceptance is the only place change can begin. It's the only place. Now, before you just think, well, you know, whatever will be, will be. It's not that. Acceptance is not resignation. And it's not defeat. It's not that you stop working at something. It's an awareness of what you're working with. So if you're an engineer, you have to know the actual properties of what you're working with to make sure that the bridge or the road or whatever stands. You don't just do whatever and hope it works out because the situation's difficult, right? The same thing is true intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, that we have to look at the reality of the situation. It's not resignation. It's not defeat. It's actually the beginning of victory, the beginning of joy, the beginning of peace, the beginning of a new life. Bishop Tutu says it like this. We are meant to live in joy. This does not mean that life will be easy or painless. It means that we can turn our faces to the wind and accept that this is the storm we must pass through. We cannot succeed by denying what exists. The acceptance of reality is the only place from which change can begin. Many of you know that uh, around here, we are big believers in mental health and, and big believers in counseling and working with psychologists and psychiatrists and therapists to help you all the time so that when a crisis comes, you're ready to deal with it. You already have somebody that you can talk to. I, I've been talking to Dr. Stephen Hopper since 2003, and he's very helpful to me. I check in every once in a while, certainly quarterly, um, if I need to, just to lay the burdens of the church, not on my family or on my staff, but on him, because he can't do anything about it, and I pay him. Right? I just leave it there. And it's a beautiful thing. And I was, I was talking to him about my, my family situation, which is very difficult at the moment. Uh, my dad is in full-time nursing care. My mom had a stroke last week. Uh, She's in rehabilitation. It's just my sister and I. We care for them. Uh, I've got a a young one graduating yesterday. 
I've got another son in Tulsa. Uh, we're the caregivers on both ends. Uh, my cousin, my little cousin yesterday was life-flighted to Montgomery uh, because he went into anaphylactic shock. I mean, all kinds of stuff just going on around the family. And yet, there's also joy in our family. And how do you do all that at the same time? And how do you deal with the fact that every, like we, our, both our boys went to Edmund North, right? And so for years and years and years, our friends were the boys' friends. We would go to a band concert or a band contest, and we ran with those people. We don't even see those people anymore. We would go to a football game or a soccer game or a baseball game or a wrestling match, and those would be our people. We don't see any of those people. I haven't seen them in years. Chantel said it like this. One, uh, Noah's best friend, his parents are moving out of state. And it really was one of, one of those things like, huh. Like these are people we've known for almost 15, 20 years. And they're leaving our community. And Chantel looked at me and she said, it's the end of an era. We do have a flair for dramatic in our, in our family. <laughs> the end of an era. And it is. It is. And this is what Dr. Hopper said to me about this. He said, Mark, until you accept that a season has ended, you can't start a new one. There's all kinds of opportunities in the new season, the new era that we're about to walk into. And the good news and the terrible news about that is you have to renegotiate all of it. What are we going to do? How are we going to spend our time? How are we going to spend our resources? Where are we going to live? What's, what are we going to do today? Because it's not doing what we did 15 years ago. Going to the public schools and doing the things that we did. It's different. So this, this kind of came to a very clear point uh, yesterday uh, when Noah graduated uh, with an aerospace engineering degree. And this is our youngest here. Uh, with this little award here, which is the Outstanding Seniors Award, top 10 of his class for the whole university, and aerospace engineering. Not just his program, but for the whole university. I, yes, I can do that. Because I'm his dad, and I want all those aerospace people online to give him a job. <laughs> and Brandon preached on humility two weeks ago. It's not mine. So I, I just, just roll it out here. But as we do this, the highest and most prestigious award that they give, that's it. That's the end of it. Less than 24 hours ago, we watched him play in his last university college um, performance and to walk the stage and to turn the tassel. And that's it. All the places that we've learned to hang out in Wichita, the, the wonderful restaurants and the places that we go and the, the keeper of the plains and all the wonderful things of Wichita... We won't be back there in the same ways. It'll be a new era. Many of you are going through the same thing with your high schoolers or your college students or your parents or your kids. It's an opportunity to start a new one. But until you accept it, can you imagine how weird it'd be if Chantel and I kept going to Wichita State even though we didn't have a student? That'd just be weird. People do it. Acceptance allows us to engage with life rather than rail against it just because life's not as we wish. Now, this will often come to me in, in my pastoral office when normally adult children, somewhere between the ages of like 18 and 80, 
figure out that their parents are limited. That they are incapable of giving them the blessing that they need. They're not able to say I love you in a way that's meaningful. They're not able to show up for the things that are important to you. They're not able to hear your struggles with your children. They're just full of advice. Or have you tried this? Because we haven't really accepted who our parents really are. And they are beloved by God and they are children of God, but they are limited and they are not God. And they're not gods. And there are many things that they simply cannot give you. Because they're mortals. They're not gods. We have all kinds of people. We, we figure this out with our spouse. And we figure, oh my gosh, my spouse cannot fulfill me in these ways. Well, of course not. No one can. That's God's role. And some people figure that out early and they accept that. And they have long-lasting, beautiful marriages. And some people never accept that. And they're serial marriage people. One after another, after another, after another. Because they keep looking for their spouse to fulfill something that simply they cannot fulfill. But you can't get out of that cycle until you accept the fact of the limitations of the people that you love and that love you and that you yourself are limited. Arthur Brooks puts it very poignantly. He says, you can choose to try remodeling the world or you can start by changing your reaction to it. By the way, that's a big remodel. And if you've ever done one, they're harder than building. So we have these moments of grief and despair and joy all wrapped up together. Back in 1969, many of you all will know the work of psychiatrist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She says that those experiencing death or a type of grief or dying, they go through five stages. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, which we see a lot of because folks aren't ever getting to acceptance. They're just getting stuck here because they look at their situation and they can't figure it out because there's no figuring it out. You can't win life. You can't beat life. Life is life, and you can either accept it or you can be on antidepressants. And I'm not against antidepressants. Lots of folks need them, right? That's a good, healthy thing. I'm not, I'm not beating that. But here's the thing. We, we cannot get here. We're going to get stuck here unless we have something greater than ourselves. Unless we know a God that loves us, a God that cares for us, a community that surrounds us and helps us in our times of need. And so Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, she would, she would put it like this. There's that shock and denial on that end. And then, of course, there's the anger and the bargaining. And then up here's acceptance. And down here's depression. And you're, you're back into crisis. And in case you're not sure which one of those graphs you're supposed to follow, they give you a little smiley face. And a, and a sad face. Right? The top one's better. Like, that's the one we're going for. Okay? And we know this to be true. It's, it's not, it's not um, reserved for certain kinds of people at certain kinds of time. In our country... U.S. deaths from drug overdoses rose 15% in 2021 to record-breaking levels nearly 108,000 people last year. Now, the only thing worse than that is that the year before it was 30%. Now, of course, you know, we can blame COVID and there's pieces of that for sure. But the CDC reported just this week on Wednesday this increase of nearly 15%. Let's follow the 30%. And the number of drug overdose deaths has increased every year except 2018 since the 1970s. Every year. It's worse. Every year. We have some really important work to do about accepting our world, accepting the goodness of God, and then able to live in joy. And to just say it's going to be okay. Because to live is Christ. And to die is gain. So, we're at the end of these four qualities of the mind. 
Perspective, humility, humor, and acceptance. Next week, we're going to move into those of the heart. We're going to talk about forgiveness, which is a huge one. And we'll, we'll talk about that. So Douglas Abrams, in his book on joy, he says, When we accept the present, acceptance, we can forgive and release the desire for a different past. How many of us are still looking back at something that we wish were different? You can't change that. But you can allow God to redeem it. You can learn from it. And you can choose not to make the same mistake with your children or your friends or at your next job or whatever it is. When we accept the present, we can forgive and release the desire for a different past. We'll talk more about that next week. To forgive our past. So Bishop Tutu, he says like this, sometimes we get too angry with ourselves. That's certainly true, thinking that we ought to be perfect from the word go. We are not. We won't be. It's not humanly possible. But this being on earth is a time for us to learn to be good. Yes. To learn to be more loving. Yes. To learn to be more compassionate. Yes. That's what church is for, to teach us how to live in heaven where those things are always there. And you learn, not theoretically, you learn when something happens that tests you. And that is the beating. Because if you run away from the test, you never learn the lesson. And peace and joy are elusive. You have to go through the test in order to receive the gift that's on the other side of that test. That's not to say that God is doing it to you. I'm not saying that. I am saying that in this life, you will have trouble. Jesus is very clear about that. And if we will allow Jesus to be a part of that trouble with us and say, Jesus, what is going on with this? Then we can learn all sorts of things and have joy in the middle of that trial, even in our sadness, even in our grief. So Jesus lived this out perfectly, of course. When Jesus accepted his mission of the cross, he became not the victim of sin, but the solution. You all remember that this was not a celebration piece in Jesus' day. It was the worst thing the world could do to you. The end of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, says it like this. Jesus came out, and he, as was his custom, he goes to the Mount of Olives that overlooked the temple. And his disciples followed him, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. He kneels down. He prays, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. He knows exactly what he's called to do. He doesn't want to do it, and he's sober about it, and he accepts his mission. He says, not my will, yours be done. I'll do it. I don't want to. But I'll do it because this is the reality for the salvation of the world. Then an angel actually comes and ministers to him to give him strength. And in his anguish, he prayed even more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. And when he got up from prayer, he came to the disciples. And were they supportive? No, they were asleep because of their grief. And he says to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. And while... He was still speaking. Suddenly this crowd comes and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, one was really close to him. He approached Jesus and he kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, is it with a kiss? Like, really? That you're betraying the Son of Man? When those who were around him saw what was coming, they asked, Lord, should we strike with the sword? Then one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus said, no more of this. No more. I'm going to accept the mission. I'm going to accept what is before me. And he touched his ear and healed him. One of the ones that would take him to his death. And one of the criminals who were hanged there when he was on the cross kept deriding Jesus and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Nothing. And they said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied. Just think, Jesus could have said anything to this guy. 
I, I mean, if it were me, I'd be like, shut up. This hurts. Like, are you kidding me? Like, this is not a good time to have an ask. Right? And this guy asked Jesus. He says, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus said, this is remarkable. Truly, I tell you, today, you will be with me in paradise. That was his mission. He accepted it, and it changed everything. So, friends, when we live into acceptance, it changes the world. Will you say that with me? When we live into acceptance, it changes the world. Because to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Amen? So here's our action step. If you've ever been to a 12-step group, you've prayed this prayer. I invite you to pray it with me now and pray it earnestly. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Now with the confidence of the children of God, let's share in our Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.